Welcome to the Antioch Austin podcast. Wherever you're listening from, we hope this message encourages you. For more information about Antioch Austin, please check our website at Last week, J.D. Uh, kicked off an awesome message speaking on the prodigal son and talked about what it means to uh, receive in order to resist. What does it mean to receive God's love in order to resist the sin in our lives? What, a, what an amazing message. I know for me, as a believer, I grew up in the church, uh, and for a long time, I was just trying to resist sin in order that maybe one day I might be able to receive the full love of the Father. And so I hope last week was a blessing for you. Uh, I don't know about you, but the prodigal son story is one of my favorite stories in the Bible. Anybody else? And because of that, we're going to do part two of the prodigal son story. Is that cool with you guys? Are y'all awake? I heard there's free coffee out in the lobby, so if you, if you get a little sleepy, stand up, walk outside, get some coffee, and bring me a little hot cup as well. Uh, but we are going to jump in and talk today about what it means to receive as we remain. Turn to your neighbor and say, receive as you remain. That word remain, you might have seen it in Scripture as abide. Now, I don't know about you, but when I heard that term abide, I was like, I don't know what that even means. And so when I read passages like the famous one in John 15 that says, abide in me and I in you. You guys ever heard that passage before? As a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Does anybody in the room want some fruit in their lives? Anybody like, I don't know a lot of people that are like, I want to get to the end of my life and I want to have as little fruit as possible. No, most of us are like, I want some fruit in my life. And Jesus has just given us in John 15 the answer to that. That when we remain or abide, that's all that abide means. It just means remain close to Jesus. That the overflow of that is fruit in our lives. And so what I want to go into is, is, is here's a question for you guys. If you were to think about the Father heart of God, if you were to think about abiding or remaining close to the Father heart of God, does that get you, if you're really honest, does that get you excited? Now, 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 I want you to think about it from a little bit of a different perspective. If you think about, I want to remain close to dad, maybe your earthly dad, do you have the same sentiment? What I found in life is that oftentimes, though we want to remain close to the Father in heaven, we're challenged because we don't really re- want to remain close sometimes to our earthly fathers and our earthly father's perspective oftentimes shaped the perspective of our Heavenly Father. Now, I know that for me, when it comes to being a dad, I've, I've experienced my shortcomings. Any other dads in the room, can I get an amen? I, it didn't take me long as a dad to realize that I've got these things called dad fails that happen all the time. This is a picture of my family. And as you can see, uh, I'm new at the game. So I've got a three-year-old down low, that's Haven. I've got a two-year-old top right, that's James. And then I've got a tiny little squishy nugget named Jacob, and he is four weeks old. Now, now when you look at that, you can tell just by looking that I have three kids under four that I'm lacking in experience and have abundant of opportunities to fail. So let me, can I just bring you into a dad fail moment? All right, J.D. loves these. He's never had a dad fail moment. But for me, so for me, i got to back up. So my little boy, James... He was like six months old at this time. Now, for those of you that are single bros like I once was and have no grid for what a six-month-old can actually do, my son could barely crawl around. He definitely couldn't stand. And I'm sitting in the living room playing with both my kids. And I've got Haven, 
who's two years old at that point. Now that means running, running around, acting a fool the whole time. My six-month-old is like barely rolling around. And I'm kind of going back and forth between the kids, just messing with them, playing with them, having a good time. And I pick James up thinking, you know, I'm going to get him a little bit of exercise. That's what you do as a good parent. You train them so that they walk faster than the other kids, right, by, by giving them a little bit of exercise, something that J.D. is not too familiar with, the whole exercise thing. I was just showing it with my kid. And so I'm sitting here with James, and, and at some point, at some point, I forget that I'm holding James and think that I'm holding Haven. Okay, so you see where this is going. So I'm, I'm giving him his little leg exercise, and I have a distracted dad moment, which distracted dad equals dad fails most of the time in my life. And so here's my little six-month-old propped up on his legs, and I turn as though I'm going to do something else, and I leave my six-month-old standing as I turn this direction. And as I turn this direction, I meet eye-to-eye with my two-year-old Haven and realize Haven is not over here. That is James. And I look back just in time to see my six-month-old teetering backwards, crumpling onto his behind, and then smoking his head on the floor with a big smack. Loud enough for my wife to hear that's across the house and comes that question like she didn't hear anything up until the thud, and then Mama Bear goes, what was that noise? And I'm like, how do I explain what just happened to my kid? I'm sorry, babe, I uh, forgot that my son was my son, and now he might have a head injury. Like, what do I do in that moment? I, I just basically said, I'm an idiot. And my wife said, yes, you are. And so, you know, but what, what I found in my dad fail moments is that the immediate response is, I hope this didn't scar my kid for the rest of their lives. Like, I'm thinking, my six-month-old, I hope that you know how to walk. And so, like, I hope that my leg exercise, that you're okay, and he's turned out to be okay. I mean, he's, he can run around. He is, he can run around for sure now. But those dad fail moments often lead us as dads to go, man, I hope that I don't scar my kids for life. I hope that doesn't lead them to counseling. Well, dads, believe it or not, our fails will impact our kids for the rest of their lives, whether we like it or not. And for those, the rest of you that would say, I'm not a dad, you're a child of somebody, and you can probably look at your life and say, your life has been impacted by your earthly father. You ever have those moments when you're going through life and you hear dad's voice go off like a tape recording in your head, slow down, son, quit speeding, you're going to get pulled over and you don't listen to it, and the next thing you know, there's flashing blue and red lights in your rear view? Or that moment when you're like, man, I, I, I messed up and I can just picture what my dad would be doing if he was in the room watching me? That is the same way that oftentimes I've found that in my own life and in the lives of some of the people I walk with, It impacts the perspective of our heavenly father. You know, our earthly fathers lead to the fruit of our lives, right? Much of the time, uh, the impact that they have on our lives leads to some of the fruit in our own lives. That's why studies have shown that if a father is affectionate and supportive and involved, he can greatly contribute to the child's cognitive language, social development, as well as academic achievement. Dad being present, dad being active equals kid having an impact. But whether you had a great dad, whether you had a bad dad, whether you had an absent dad, we know that the the dads in our lives have left an impact. Our perspective of our Father in heaven is impacted by the perspective of our earthly father. So I believe that today, as we are going to look at the prodigal son, what I want to look at 
uh, in this story is what can we learn about the Father heart in heaven? What can we learn about God's heart for us? And we're going to look specifically at his posture. Everybody say posture. His voice. Everybody say voice. And his desire. Everybody say desire. We're going to look at his posture, his voice, and his desire in hopes that any place where our earthly father has impacted our perspective of our heavenly father, that we might gain a new perspective. It's like this. It's, it's, I woke up yesterday morning, and it was like a snowstorm of pollen hit my car. Did anybody else experience this? Anybody new to Texas and experiencing allergies? So sorry. We'll pray for healing afterwards. But what I found is that when I got in my car today, and I started driving down the road, my perspective of what was outside needed to be washed clean. And unfortunately, I was out of washer fluid, which creates a problem. But I believe that today, as we look at the Word of God, He's going to wash our perspective so that we can see the Father in heaven that much more clearly. Are you all with me? All right, let me pray, and then we're going to jump into to Luke 15. So, Father, we love you, and we thank you that you want to show us a new perspective of you. You want us to grow, that we would never plateau in our knowledge of a good, good Father. And so I pray, Holy Spirit, that you'd be with us here today and that you would speak through your word. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. amen. All right, jump in. We're going to be in John 15. Who has a paper, paper Bible? Wave it in the air. All right, all right. There we go, four of you. John 15, verse 11, Jesus continued. He's continuing because he's already been going through a series of parables. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the, the younger son got together all that he had and set off for a distant country. And there he squandered his wealth in wild living. Okay, so let me just unpack this because this is not like Pflugerville in 2018. This is not Austin, Texas in 2018. This is, this is a totally different culture and a totally different setting. So let's unpack a little bit about what's going on here. So the younger son is saying, Father, give me my share of the estate. It's basically him walking up to his dad and being like, Dad, it's been good, it's been real, but I wish you were dead. Give me your money so that I can leave. Like, that's what he's doing. He's going up to his dad and saying, basically, I wish that you were dead. And at that time, they would have been given about one-third of the property, which is not stocks and bonds. It was sheep and goats and, and maybe some gold coins and some land. And he's basically saying, hey, let me take this, even though you're not dead yet. I'd like to take this, and I'm going to run off with it. And so he takes off. Now, here's, the thing, here's one thing that I want to, to notice, that immediately after he asks something like that from his dad, what does he do? He creates distance between himself and his father. He, he removes himself from proximity and he takes off to a distant land, not like next door, a far away place. But here's something that I, I realized. I've read this passage. How many of you read, had read this passage more than 10 times in your life? Okay, I was there with you. And maybe right now you're even thinking like I was. I don't know if there's a fresh revelation that I can get from this. Believe it or not, the Word of God actually says that the Word of God is alive and well, which means that you can always read the same passage and you can always get fresh revelation. So I was reading this the other day, and what I realized the other day is that the younger son actually understood the generosity of the father. The younger son actually understood the generosity of the father. Now think about this. For him to go up to his dad and ask him for everything that he had, he wouldn't have done that if he didn't think his father was generous. 
Like if he thought that his dad was going to do what all the other dads would have done at that point, which is beat him, tell him time up, get him back into his, into his quarters. No, no. This dad, he had experienced the generosity of his father over the course of his life. The problem was is that the younger son took advantage of the generosity of the father. This, my friends, was my life for a long, long period of time. I grew up in a great home and in, 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 uh, was actually homeschooled first through fourth grade. I mean, we were doing daily devos, the whole deal. And I get into high school, and I know the generosity of God. Like, I know that if I sin, he's going to forgive me. And what do I do with that is I begin to use that for my own advantage. I live this, this, this overlapping circle of I, I uh, get right with God, and then I choose to live for the world, and then I uh, get sick of my world, and I repent, and I come back to God, and then I'm back in that cycle. Through high school, I was in that cycle. Through college, I was in that cycle where I knew what it meant to repent because I knew when I repented, He would forgive me and I could get back to the good graces of God, but I was taking advantage of the generosity of the Father. Let's keep going. It says this in verse 14, it says, After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. Have you ever been in need before? you ever gotten to a place in your own sin and brokenness where you're like, this is actually pretty terrible? That's what's going on here. It says, He went out and hired himself as a citizen of that country who went to his, uh, to his field to feed the pigs. Now, the thing about pigs is that doesn't just mean that he was going to be like around some stinky animals. As a Jewish person, he would have been making himself completely unclean, ceremonially unclean. So if he wasn't at the bottom of the barrel, he just dove headlong into the most bottom reaches of this barrel and has made him, his whole being unclean. And it says he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. What's happening here is that the son is starving in his brokenness. Because the reality is that sin and and the brokenness of the world, everything that the world has to offer, whether it's uh, success, whether it's alcohol, whether it's money, whether it's relationships, whether it's girls, whether it's status, will always lead us to a place of starving in our brokenness. I remember many times in college waking up hungover and being like, man, I am starving in my brokenness. Even though I filled myself with everything that the world has, for some reason I'm still starving. You've ever experienced the world, it's never enough. Nothing that you buy, nothing that you drink, no relationship, no amount of likes on Instagram, nothing is ever enough. It's always, that was good, I'd like some more because I'm starving in my brokenness and I long to be filled with something more. That's what's happening here to the younger son. But then this, he has his, he has his deja vu moment. It says, verse 17, when he came to his senses... Finally, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. Now, here's an interesting part about that, is that his motivation is not to be restored to his father. His motivation is what? Is to get some food. The brother's like, hey, I'm tired and I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired, but I know that at least if I go back to my father, I'm going to be less hungry. (laughs) I'm going to get fed. So he goes, okay, I'm going to head back. I'm going to say to my father, Father, I've sinned against you and against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went back to his father. I love that he prepares this speech, right? He's going to show up to his dad. He's got his speech because he knows what he needs to say to get back into his father's graces. 
He knows what he needs to do to get what he wants. Like, even though he's returning to the Father, he still kind of has a manipulative heart in it. And yet, watch what happens. We're about to see the posture of the Father. So he said, uh, verse 20, so he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, he threw his arms around him, and he kissed him. Now, I know that sounds like a Hallmark card moment, but for this period of time, that was unheard of. Like, not only does the father see his son a ways off, which means the, the father was looking for his son. The the father had not forgotten his wayward son. The father was waiting expectantly for his son, maybe sitting up on his front stoop, looking out over the horizon day after day. How long was the son gone? We don't know. Could have been months, could have been years. How many days did the father sit on that front porch and wait for his son to return? So that in that moment that the son came to his senses, even albeit uh, manipulative, manipulative, I cannot say that word, manipulatively, there it is, (laughs) he still comes back to the father. And the father sees him while he's still a long way off. And let me just say this real quick. There's some of you in this room that walked into church today and feel a long way off. There's some of you that, like me, are maybe uh, sitting in the back row either physically or, or, or in your heart, and you're feeling a long way off from what's going on on stage. You're feeling a long way off from what the preacher's talking about. You feel a long way off from this person known as Jesus or your Father in heaven. And I want you to know that right now in heaven, your Father is sitting there and His posture is not with His arms crossed. His posture is not shaking His head. His posture does not reflect maybe your memories of your earthly father when you did something wrong. No, His posture is sitting expectantly on the front porch ready to swing his arms wide open, and then he sprints to come meet you every day. That's why he says his mercies are new every morning. Like, that's not a one-time returning. That's every moment that we turn away from God and choose to do that sin stuff that we said we weren't going to do, and we choose to turn back. The Father's waiting, arms wide open. Like, it doesn't change. And what's crazy about that is that this, this Jewish dad... I just picture him in his like nappy sandals, his long robe, his beard, probably a little overweight from eating a lot of that food, and he's like sprinting down the road at his son. That is totally undignified for for a Jewish father at this time, but dignity goes out the window when it comes to the love of the father for his children. The, The love of the father here today, friends is undignified, unashamed, and he is expectedly waiting with arms wide open for each of us to return to him. And so here comes the son, verse 21. He, like, he, he, he clearly doesn't get it, and you're going to see a lot of he doesn't get it throughout this story. Verse 21, it says this, The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against you and against heaven. He's going into his speech. You hear him? I'm, I wonder how many times he practiced that. Like They walk places, so he had a lot of time on the road. I'm sure he, like, this is like a robot mummy. He's like, the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And then check this out. What does the father respond with? But the father said, this is the first time that the father says anything in the story. Everything else we've just witnessed is posture, we, and, and now we're about to hear his voice. He says, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. 
Put a ring on his finger and his sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead, and he is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. Now, we don't think much about being given a robe, sandals, a ring. But what he's doing here is his words are reestablishing his belonging and his identity. The first words out of his mouth is not calling out his sin. It's not saying, son, you know, I wish you hadn't left. Son, I'm glad to have you back, but there's no buts in God's heart for us when we return to him. Instead, he says, no, I'm going to establish his belonging. That ring and that robe and those sandals means to every servant in the room that he is a son of the father who's in charge. He just reestablished his sonship and his belonging in front of everybody. And he says, I'm going to throw him a party because that's what, that's what your daddy in heaven does. He's not like, all right, let's go back to the spanking room and, I, and we're going to deal with you. He's like, no, 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 no. Party time. My boy, my girl is back. And I want to celebrate. Verse 25. It says, meanwhile, the older son was in the field. Now, as for those of you who grew up in the church, generally people identify with one or the other. Right? I'm, an, I'm a younger son person. Where are my younger son people at? Okay, now where are my older son people at? Older sons or daughters. You, daughters on both sides. But for me in my own life, I've been both. For me in my life, I can go really quickly from being the younger son to being the older son. I can go really quick from being like, man, groveling, I'm so, uh, to moving into this entitlement that we're about to see in the older son. It says this, Meanwhile, the older son was in the field, and when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. And he's going, man, what's going on in my dad's house? Music and dancing. So he called one of his servants, and he asked him, hey, man, what's going on? Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he had, he had, uh, he has him back safe and sound. I wonder how often the younger son watched that fattened calf. Like, I wonder if the, son, the, the older son actually helped fatten that calf and was thinking, man, I'm working pretty hard, working diligently out in the field, and I'm actually literally fattening this calf so that one day I can throw a party for me and my homies. And then all of a sudden, his, his rejected younger brother, who spat in his father's face, who disgraced his entire family, who wandered off, squandered his dad's wealth and everything, is back and he hears music and dancing and that, that fat little calf is now dead and on the roast? Like, what would be going on in you? I don't know about you, but sometimes it can be hard to see somebody else be celebrated when they turn to Jesus, when you're like, man, I've been working hard for Jesus. Like, I've been serving him. I, like get er I get here early to church. I'm, like, serving, stacking chairs. And then, but for some reason, the people that get celebrated are always the one that, like, just got done doing dumb stuff. And so it starts to be this thing in your heart of like, man, maybe I should do dumb stuff because then maybe I'll be celebrated. It's kind of twisted, but it happens. Don't do it, J.D. says. Amen. So we're going to see the condition of his heart reflected by his reaction here in this moment. It says this, the older brother, verse 28, became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. 
Now let me, let me point out a couple of key things in this part. The older brother becomes angry. Like we can't always help the way that we feel, but the way that we feel is often reflective of our perspective. Let me say that again. So we can't help the way that we feel, but oftentimes the reaction of our emotions is an indication of our perspective and the, what, the things that we've been dwelling on in our mind. And so it says he gets angry and refuses to go in. Now remember, he's the older son. And as a Jewish older son, there was a missing piece of the puzzle to seeing the younger son fully forgiven and restored. And that missing piece was the older son. He was the restorative person and member of the family. So in order for his younger son to be restored fully to the family, the older son had to go in. And right there in his bitterness, the older son is refusing not just to enter the house. He's refusing to forgive and restore his younger brother. Unforgiveness oftentimes stems from bitterness as we look at what other people have and what we are missing out on. You ever been in worship situation? You're like, why is that dude or that girl over there like worshiping un unrestrained and I'm sitting here and I feel nothing? Like, why can't I look like that person? Why can't I experience God? Why can't I taste God? The why can't I's are running rampant in the older son's mind. And I think sometimes in the church place, I know I have a tendency to go, man, yeah, that's great for him, but what about me? So what does the father do? We're about to see his posture again. It says, the father comes out to meet him. And it says, verse 29, but he answered the father, look. Now let me just say this. A Jewish dude back then does not look at his dad and say, look. That'd be like modern day of being like, dude. Like, dude. Like, you don't call your dad dude, right? That, that got me a spanking growing up. And he's saying, look, all these years I've been, what, slaving for you. And I've never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat that I could celebrate with and my friends. Even though the older son was doing the right thing, he was doing it for the wrong reasons. I don't think that this father ever wanted his son to slave or obey orders, I think that this father wanted relationship. But when we do the right things with the wrong motivation, what it looks like is slaving for God, not abiding in God. And when we slave for God, what happens is when other people get blessed, we feel like we're cursed. When other people get encouraged, we feel discouraged because we're saying, man, I've been slaving for you, God. I've been slaving for you at church. I've been slaving for you in the way that I love people. I've been slaving for you in the way I love my wife. And, that, and then this happens to me. Somebody else gets the goods, and I'm left out in the field. But when this son of yours who squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf. He's saying, why do you give good things to somebody who doesn't deserve it? Verse 31, we see the, the father respond, and it's going de to demonstrate the desire of the father. We've had the posture, we've heard the voice, and now we're going to see the desire of the father. He says this in verse 31, my son. Don't you love that that same voice that affirmed the younger son that came back and established his belonging, he's saying even though his son is disobedient and outright rebellious, staying outside, the father says, my son. 
And even in that moment, he reestablishes his identity as a son. He says, you are always with me. And everything I have is yours. But when we had to celebrate, but we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. You are always with me. Everything I have is yours. Now this son physically had stayed in proximity, but his heart had drifted. And what the father is saying is, son, if you had wanted the fattened calf, don't you know that everything that I have is yours? That because you remained in my presence, everything that you want, everything that you need is going to be taken care of because you're in my presence. You're in my household. You're filled and surrounded with my goodness. This is the desire of the Father, that we would remain in His presence to receive all that He has for us. This, my friends, is the essence of abiding. Abiding sometimes seems like a monkish concept that feels very, very distant. And this is the way that my abiding has had to grow. Because I, like when I first started walking with God, I just needed to at least look at my Bible once a day. Like that was, that was like step one of trying to figure out my life. But as I've grown in my relationship with God, what it's done is it's, it's made me realize that it's not just about a one-time moment, a time with God in the moment. It's about consistently staying connected and remaining in His presence as you go throughout the day. I remember one time when this was radical in the way that it impacted my life, I was just trying to practice hearing the Lord. And so I found myself at DFW Airport waiting for somebody to come, and I had a little bit of extra time. Let me just say, when you have a little extra time, Tap into what the Father's doing because He wants to speak with you. And I see this couple sit, sitting on a bench. And I'm like, all right, Father, what do you have for this, this couple? And immediately He says, infertility. And I'm like, what's the next thing that you have for this couple? <laughs> infertility. Now, hearing the voice of the Lord and walking that out, there's this thing called wisdom that's very, very helpful. And so I said, all right, Lord, I'm going to step out. I need your wisdom. And I just asked. I said, Father, what do you want for them? And then when he gave it to me, I said, Father, would you empower me now to go deliver this word to this couple? And so I got out of my car, you know, knees shaking. I'm still figuring this whole thing out. No idea what I'm going to say until the words start coming out of my mouth. One of those things, sketchy. And I walk up to this couple and I'm like, hey, friends, um, sitting out there in the parking lot staring at you, kind of creepy, sorry about that. But I just was praying for you. And I felt like the Lord wanted me to come and encourage you. Is there anything, note, note that I said encourage you, not just I, I felt like the Lord said infertility to you. Does that mean anything? No, no, no. Like I, I, I chose to go a different route and I said, hey, is there anything that I can pray for you? And they both looked at each other and said, yeah, we're, we're Catholics and you know, been, we've been trying to walk with God for a while, but since we've been married, we've been trying to have kids and we've been unable to have kids. Could you pray for us because we're struggling with the ability to have kids? And inside I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. On the one hand, I'm like, dang, I wish I had delivered it, just like, let me do this. But still, with the wisdom, they still felt love. And I said, friends, I was sitting in the car, and I felt like the Lord spoke this word to you. I know that might seem crazy. It feels pretty crazy to me. But I would love to just pray for you in that moment. So we sat there in the, in the drive-up area of DFW holding hands, and I just prayed for this couple to be healed, and then went on throughout my day. I don't know if that person got healed. I don't know what came of it, but I do know that when I asked, I received something from the Lord. 
And what I received from the Lord, I was responsible to do with the Lord. And there was fruit. Fruit in my own life where I'll never be the same because of that moment. Hopefully fruit in their lives because they experienced the love of the Father. When we remain, when we abide in the Father, the fruit is not exerted. (laughs) The fruit is received. Let me say that again. When we abide in the Father, when we remain in Him, we receive the fruit in our lives. We don't like, oh, I just need more fruit. Oh, I need to be more fruity. No, it's like, no, Father, ask and you will receive. John 15, verse 7 says, If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Verse 16, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, and so that whatever you ask for in my name, the Father will give for you. The posture of the Father today is arms wide open. His voice speaks tenderly, excitedly, and graciously. And His desire, His deepest desire is that you would remain close to Him in body and in your heart. Let's stand together. So here's, here's how I want to respond today. Is that regardless of what son you identified with, whether you feel like you're the older son or the younger son or a hybrid like me of the two, I think there's three different ways that the Lord put on my heart to respond. Number one, to approach. Number two, to appreciate. And number three, to ask. You ever done that in the reverse order? <laughs> you ask so that you can approach, so that you can appreciate. <laughs> No, today I want us to first approach. If we could have prayer teams come up front. And approaching might look like coming up to the front to receive prayer. But approaching might look like for some of you, those that would say, I still feel like I'm distant from God. The approaching is simply a turning of your heart to say, Jesus, I want to remain near you. And if you've never done that before, if you'd say in in your life, man, I've just never approached God before, If I could just invite everybody to close their eyes, even if it's just for one person, here's what it looks like to approach the Father with His arms wide open. It's just you admit that you're broken. You say, Father, I admit that I've messed up. Father, I believe that Your Son Jesus allows me to approach You. I believe that Jesus died and rose again so that I could have access to new life. And so God, I give You my life here today. And just in the simplicity of those words both being shared from your mouth and also felt in your heart, Scripture says that there's a party in in, in heaven to celebrate what God has done in your heart. And if that's you, I definitely want to encourage you to come down and just share about that decision that you've made to follow Jesus. But for the rest of us, to approach, to appreciate, and to ask. Approach the Father right now in your mind. And just say, Father, I choose to come near to you. And as you draw near to him, why don't you begin thanking him for what he has already done. Whether you want to do it out loud, whether you want to do it in your heart. Psalm 100 says that we enter his gates with thanksgiving, his courts with praise. When we are thankful, we engage the presence of God. 
And last but not least, ask. That might be asking, Father, is there anything in my heart that's keeping me from drawing near to you? That might be asking him, Father, I need you to break through in this area of my life. Whatever it is, just take a moment and ask the Father what he has for you today. Now as I pray to close and we go into a time of worship, I want to invite anybody to come up to the front. The prayer teams are here to pray with you, to to pray with you as you ask the Father to move. And so, Father, would you move in this place in powerful ways? Father, would you speak to people for the first time? Would they hear your voice? Father, would we be a people that remain near to you? Would we be a people that abide in you?